the conclusion to Galatians. Galatians chapter 6, 11 to 18. Hear the word of the Lord. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Although protocols and conventions have gotten less formal over time, we still have ways that we mark that a conversation is coming to a close. If we're on the phone with somebody or even meeting with somebody in person, we begin to wind down by saying, it was so good to talk to you. And that's a a simple signal uh, that that this is winding down. And then we reciprocate, and then we we kind of trail off, and, and we know that this is coming to a close. If we still write letters, which have become uh, rarer and rarer, we still are, are expected to have some sort of a closing, a sincerely, something to, to wind down and to let you know that the letter is coming to a close. In emails, uh, not so much perhaps, but even so, we still tend to, to sign our name and, and sometimes we'll add a closing blessing or a closing uh, hope to see you soon or something like that to indicate that this is coming to a close. Now, that's what Paul does here. In verse 11, he signals that he's drawing this to a close. And the way he does it is one of two things. We're not quite sure, but either this was an unusual letter that Paul penned with his own hand, and he is, he is emphasizing the fact that he wrote this whole letter with his own hand, which was not the way that people wrote letters in the day. They used secretaries, and they dictated their letters. By the way, that's why Paul's letters sound like speech, and he interrupts himself, and he interjects things, just like we do in normal speech, because he is likely dictating his letters. He's probably speaking his letters. He may have written this whole letter, but probably the interpretation of verse 11 is this, that at this point, Paul said to the secretary, give me the pen, please, because he wanted the last part of this letter to be in his own hand. And here, he also apparently used large letters. We still do that. We found a way in, in emails and in texting to emphasize things. And one of the most common ways is what? By using uppercase letters. And that's like shouting. That's really emphasizing. It looks like that's what Paul did. Wouldn't it be fascinating to see the original manuscript and to see how Paul wrote these large letters in his own hand? But here he's signaling that he's coming to a close and he's signaling that he is emphasizing this last. He's not going to trail off here. 
Uh, instead of trailing off, what he did is he reiterated and he crystallized the message of the whole letter. And he did so by writing about boasting. By writing about boasting. And here he contrasts two types of boasts. One type of boast we find in verses 12 and 13, and then we find the other type in verses 14 and 15. We could call these religious boasting and Christian boasting. Now, in his parting shot here, Paul once again revealed the motivations of the false teachers who insisted on circumcision as an obligation for Gentile, that is, non-Jewish Christians. Uh, And what he did was, he exposed them again. And he said why they were doing what they were doing. Why they were preaching circumcision instead of the good news of Jesus Christ. Or as an add-on to the good news of Jesus Christ. And he says three things about them. Verses 12 and 13. He says, It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised, that they may boast in your flesh. Three motivations of these false teachers. The first one, they wanted to make a good impression according to worldly standards. They wanted to make a good impression. And the way he says it, they want to make a good showing in the flesh. They wanted to to have some level of acceptance and popularity by worldly standards. The second thing is, they wanted to live comfortably. They wanted to live comfortably by avoiding persecution. Uh, That's why they avoided preaching the cross of Christ as it stands, and they added on something that was more, more religiously acceptable. In the day... There was persecution of Jews, but in general, there was an acceptance of the Jewish faith. But when Christianity began being seen as something that was distinct from from, uh, Judaism, it began being persecuted more. So preaching the cross of Christ was more likely to bring persecution than preaching circumcision, preaching Judaism. So they wanted to make a good impression. They wanted to live comfortably. And the third is that they wanted to cover up their hypocrisy by boasting in ministerial success. It says that not even those who are circumcised keep the law. And we saw that circumcision brings with it an obligation to keep the law. So these people were preaching circumcision, but they themselves were unable to keep the law. So there was a a level of hypocrisy there, preaching one thing to others, but not doing it themselves. But in order to cover that up, They wanted to be able to boast in their success, their ministerial, their pastoral, their preaching success. And uh, it says they wanted to boast in your flesh. What does this mean? Boasting in your flesh is boasting in the number of their converts. Uh, They wanted to, to notch their Bibles, as it were. They wanted to show how they had been very successful preachers, that many were following after them, maybe more following after them than followed after Paul. So, covering up hypocrisy by by boasting in their ministerial success. Now, let's talk about boasting. What is boasting? Boasting is some, some synonyms. Boasting is glorying in, taking delight in, exalting in, taking pride in something or another. That's what boasting is. And all humans have our boasts. 
All humans have our glories, our exaltations, our prides, our delights. All humans have those. And the problem is not that we boast. The problem is in what we boast. All humans boast. But the question is, in what do we boast? Do we boast in lesser things? That was the problem here. They were boasting in lesser things. And one way to discover, you may say, well, I don't boast, and I've heard people boast about never boasting. (laughs) Unaware of what they're doing. Oh, I never boast. But one way to discover our boasts, if we're so unaware of our boasting, is to see what we criticize or despise or look down on in other people. That's one way we can expose our boasts. For example, if we look down on somebody's nationality, that means that we're proud of our own. If we look down on someone's race, that means we're boasting in ours. If we look down on someone's ignorance, that means we're boasting in our knowledge. If we look down on somebody's or criticize somebody's dullness, that means we're boasting in our intelligence. If we look down or despise what we consider somebody's ugliness, that means we're boasting in our supposed beauty. If we look down or despise or criticize somebody's poverty, that means that we are boasting in our wealth. If we look down on somebody's awkwardness, then we're boasting in our social graces. If we look down on somebody's uh, uh, clumsiness, that means we're boasting in our athletic ability. Do you see how this works? See what you find yourself despising. See what you find criticizing or look down, looking down on in others. And there you will find your glory. There you will find your boast. There you will find your pride and your delight. Now, the false teachers in Galatia were experts in religious boasting, using the Christian faith for self-promotion. Unfortunately, they were not the last teachers within the pale of the Christian church to do this. In lands that tolerate or even promote Christianity, the Christian church can provide a springboard for some to fame, to wealth, or to power. And we see this happened in the early centuries of the Christian church. So persecuted in the first century, persecuted in the second century, persecuted at the beginning of the third century. Then in the third century, the famous edict of toleration by Constantine. Christianity became tolerated and then Constantine identified himself as a Christian. Well, the emperor is identifying himself with Christianity. So let's get on board with this. What do you think happened to Christianity? when it became tolerated, when it became, became respectable, when it became, became even the, eventually the official religion of the Roman Empire. People poured into the church because that was the place to be. That's where the action was. That's how you could advance your career. And so this, is, this has happened a number of times and perhaps constantly during the history of the church. Now, we need to beware... We need to beware of ministers who promote themselves. And we need to pray, you need to pray for your ministers that we would not be like these false teachers. Because this is a constant temptation for those who are what might be called religious workers to become religious boasters. 
boasters in ministerial success rather than a true minister of the gospel like the Apostle Paul. And we have here the contrast in verses 14 and 15. In contrast, Paul perhaps recognized that he had a tendency to boast in other things, and so the way he expresses it here is something like a prayer or a wish or a desire in verse 14. He says, Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is a very strong desire. Paul saying, May it never be in my life. May I never boast in anything except in the cross of Christ. And by the way, Paul knew what it was like to boast in his religiosity. If we go to Philippians chapter 3, verses 3 to 6, on page 1085, Paul recalls his life before becoming a Christian. And here he says, We are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. But then he says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So Paul was saying, these were my boasts before. And here he was going toe to toe with religious teachers like in Galatia as well, who were promoting circumcision. He's saying, I used to play that game and nobody could beat me at that game. I used to boast in these things, and nobody had more reason to boast than I did. He knew what it was like to have a religious boast, and nobody could beat him at that game of boasting. But then if we go on reading, he says in verse 7, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss, For the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. He said, I had all these boasts and nobody could beat me. And I count all those boasts as rubbish because I have something more precious. I traded all of that for the righteousness that comes from God through faith in Jesus Christ. So all of that doesn't hold a candle to what I now have in Christ, in knowing Christ. But if we go back to Galatians, we need to try to understand how shocking Paul's statement is. He says, Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are so used to seeing the cross as adornment as ornament. 
We wear them around our neck. Uh, Maybe people wear them as earrings. We see them adorning buildings. They're all over the place. Crosses. They are ornaments and adornments. Uh, We need to remember that the cross was uh, an instrument of execution. And it was the most vile instrument of execution. And Paul already recognized in Galatians that that was offensive. And it was a curse both in Roman law and it was a curse also under the Old Testament to be hanged on a tree. And here Paul is saying, may I never boast. By the way, in Roman society, they wouldn't mention in polite Roman society, even though they crucified people as the execution of the worst kind of criminals, they wouldn't mention the word. It was that offensive. It was something like a profanity or a vulgarity. They used the circumlocution and they talked about hanging on the unlucky tree. Hanging on the unlucky tree. So vile was the idea of the cross. And here, Paul is taking that most vile symbol, that most vile instrument of execution, and he's saying, this is my glory. This is my pride. This is my boast. Now, elsewhere, he admitted that this message of the cross tripped people up it was really hard to get over. This was something of a liability in, in the Christian message because it was so offensive. If you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it's on page 1054. Chapter 1, verse 23, Paul says here, backing up a little bit, in 22 it says, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. This is what impressed Jews. They had a history of miraculous signs and they sought miraculous signs. And he says, the Greeks, they had a history of philosophy, they sought wisdom. But then he says, but we preach Christ crucified. And then he says, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. He recognized that. And instead of hiding that, instead of saying, I know that people are going to trip over this, I know when they hear us talking about the cross, they're going to... They're going to ridicule, they're going to to laugh at this, they're going to despise this. Instead of doing that, he says, I boast in this. I boast in this message that is offensive. I boast in this message that is, is folly to many. I boast in this message that is weakness and despised by many. And then he says why in verse 24. 1 Corinthians 1, 24, But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. You see, this is why Paul boasted in the cross. Because what is the cross? For those who believe the message of the cross, the cross is salvation. The cross is the wisdom of God. The cross is the power of God. And then the next verse says, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. This is why... The cross must be our only boast because the cross takes away all our other boasts. You see, the cross is foolishness, but it's wiser than our greatest wisdom. And the cross is weakness, but it's stronger than our greatest strength. That's what he says. That's why it's the only boast of the Christian. The cross gives all glory to God and to Christ and none to us. In addition, going back to Galatians, in addition, the cross changes us. This boasting in the cross, it transforms us. 
Paul says, May I never boast, far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. This is the second time that Paul has talked about being crucified. In in chapter 2, verse 20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. And now he talks about two other aspects of the crucifixion. So Christ was crucified for sinners. Paul says, I have been crucified. I no longer live. I have a new life. And he says, this crucifixion that I have undergone has changed my relationship to the world. He says, through the cross, through this boast, I have been crucified to the world and the world has been crucified to me. Now when he talks about the world, He's talking about the world system in rebellion against God. He's talking about the world values. He's talking about the world's standards. And what he's saying is this. We Christians, before the world system, we are a big fat zero. We do not count. We are a waste. We are a shame. We are a loss. That's what we are to the world. It looks at us and it shakes its head and says, poor, poor people, those Christians. So we don't count anymore in the world system by the world's standards. They have lost us and they consider that loss to be something of a waste or a pity. Now if this is the case, then if you want to be popular in the world, you don't want to be a Christian. Because Paul says these are opposite. You can't curry favor with the world like these religious leaders were doing, or these religious teachers, and also be a follower of Christ. So if, if we are believers in Jesus Christ, then, then the world looks at us and says, that's a shame. I, I've experienced a little bit of this. I had teachers and professors, as, as you probably did as well, that had these great hopes for you, that you would make something of your life in this world. And then, to their horror, they found out that I had become a pastor. What a shame. What a waste of a life, they thought. A zero. They thought they had invested so much that I actually might do something with my life. But instead, I became a Christian. I became a pastor. I don't count anymore in that system. And neither do you. But Paul also says the other side of that crucifixion is this. The world system is worthless to us and does not dictate our values or control our lives. So he says, not only have I been cut off from the world, the world with its values and standards has been cut off to me as well. Not only do I, do I not count anymore for the world, those values don't count to me either. That's what Paul says. This is at least how it should be. But I think to our shame, to my shame at least, far too easily we Christians accept the values of the world and affirm the values of the world and depend on the methods of the world depending depending on economic 
or political or intellectual power instead of on the message of the cross. And when we do that, we end up we end up simply putting ourselves at the service of the world to be used and then continue to be despised and cast off when we no longer serve their purposes. And, even more tragically, we have given up our greatest power. If we boast in political or economic or intellectual or whatever it might be, we've given up that which is most powerful, which is the cross of Jesus Christ. May it never be, says Paul, that I should boast... That's the prayer that all Christians need to be praying. May I never boast in anything except the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because what does the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ do? It causes the crucifixion. That's the negative side. It cuts us off. But the positive side is that it makes a whole new world, a whole new creation. If you look at verse 15, Paul says, Once again, second time he said this, for neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. This is the second time Paul has said this. Paul, the former Pharisee, strict Jew, persecutor of the church, in chapter 5, verse 6, he's already said, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. And then he says here, same thing, for neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision. But now, what's he say? A new creation. Because we might say, well, what am I going to do? Where am I going to live? Where am I going to function? If I have been cut off from the world and the world's been cut off from me, what does that leave me? What's left for me if I no longer have the world and if the world no longer has me? And the answer is something even better. A new creation. A a, a new world that God has made for us. And what's that new world look like? Go back and read chapters 5 and 6. It looks like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It looks like the reign of the Spirit. It looks like the reign of love. That's what this new world looks like. That's the new world that we inherit. That's the new creation that we are and that we inhabit. So we've been cut off from the old, but we've been ushered in to the new. And then Paul brings it to a close and he says in verse 16, as for all who walk by this rule, what rule? The rule of the new creation, who no longer walk by the rule of the world and the standards of the world, walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them. And then if you go down to verse 18, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirits, brothers. Amen. So what does he pronounce on those who walk according to this new creation? He pronounces peace and mercy and grace. And if we go back to Galatians chapter 1, verse 1 and 2 and 3, Paul, he introduces himself in verse 1. Verse 2, he says, And all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you, and what? Peace from God our Father. So he starts with grace, God's favor towards sinners. He starts with peace, the shalom, the well-being of God. And he ends with grace and peace. And then he throws in mercy as well. So this is what we get. Those of us who are in this new creation through faith in Jesus Christ. Now he does mention the Israel of God. 
in verse 16, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. There's some debate about who the Israel of God is here, and there are basically three different interpretations, one of which I think commends itself more than the others. One interpretation that this is uh, speaking of ethnic Jews, speaking of Israel, but that would go against the message of the letter that dismisses these distinctions. He's already said in the verse before that, he has said, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. So it would be unusual for him to distinguish then a different ethnic group when he has just dismissed circumcision, uncircumcision. The second interpretation is similar to that, and that is that the Israel of God are ethnic Jews who have become believers in Jesus Christ. Now that perhaps is a, is, is, a, is a better interpretation, but it still runs into the problem of going in, in the face of what Paul has emphasized throughout this letter. That there is no Jew or Gentile in Christ. There is no circumcision or uncircumcision in Christ. That, that distinction has been abolished. And so I think the best interpretation is to go in line with what Paul has already said. If you go back to chapter 3, verse 9, 3 verse 9, where he says, So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the man of faith. And if you look at three twenty-eight and 29, he says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So who is the Israel of God? Most likely it is the people of God, believers in Jesus Christ, both Jews and Gentiles, who are the true descendants, spiritual descendants of Abraham. Now there's one verse, one more verse, and I want to look at this. Verse 17, where Paul says, From now on, let no one cause me trouble. He's had enough with these, these false teachers. And he's putting a stop down. He's putting a stop. He's putting his foot down and saying, I've had enough of this. Let no one cause me trouble. Let none of these who are wanting to be popular and uh, to be, to make a good impression in the flesh and avoid persecution, let not them cause me any more trouble. Why? And he says here, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The word is the stigmata which uh, means marks, but it became, in medieval church, it became another thing of, of flowing wounds of, of hands and feet, but it means marks, and it also was used to refer to tattoos on the body. But Paul's saying here, on my body I bear the marks of Jesus. Let me read you, you don't have to turn there, but let me read you how Paul earned his stripes earned his stripes quite literally in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24. Paul says this, Five times I received at the hand of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. 
Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and in thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. How do you think Paul looked? You think he was an attractive man? Not after that. What, is it, what did his body look like? Most likely it was, it was deformed. His skin so scarred over, having been beaten and bruised so many times. But what does he say? These are the marks of Jesus on my body. And well might Paul say, those who are looking for fame and comfort, let them not cause me any, any trouble anymore. Because I have some evidence. And I bear it every day, and I'm sure he bore pain in his body every day, that he was all in, that he really was boasting only in the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus had marks on his body from his crucifixion. Paul had marks on his body for boasting in the cross of Christ. And these, these marks contrasted with the circumcision, because what was circumcision? It was a mark in the flesh. And Paul says, that's quite a contrast, isn't it? That's what you want to do, a little, a little incision in the flesh, and that's your boast? He says, well, this is what Christianity looks like. Look at my back. Look at my face. Look at my arms. Look at my legs. This is what Christianity looks like. It may also have alluded to the tattoos that slaves received as marks of ownership. They would, be, they would be tattooed. And it may be an allusion to that. Paul is saying, do you want evidence that I belong to Christ? Look at my tattoos. Look at my marks of ownership. I belong to Jesus Christ. They certainly demonstrated that Paul was completely given over to Christ. And he was completely dead to the values of the world. And he was a cast-off in terms of the world's values. If you want indelible evidence that you are a Christian, if you want a Christian tattoo, as it were, then here's what you need to do. Preach the Gospel until they beat you for it. And then you will have the marks of Jesus on your flesh. On Friday, I finally buckled down and worked on my inboxes in my email accounts. And I tried to get rid of and answer and deal with these emails that I had let accumulate over months, unfortunately. And one of them was from a friend of mine who sent me an email that was for pastors to have a preview of a movie that came out. And the movie was called Tortured for Christ. And I hadn't watched it at the time. I was busy when he sent it to me. I watched a few minutes of it, and then I I forgot about it. But as I was digging through my emails, I found it there, and I decided that I would watch it. And it was about a man named Richard Werbrand. And Richard Werbrand was a simple pastor. He was a Lutheran pastor in the country of Romania. And he was doing his normal pastoral duties, un 
unheralded by anybody, unknown as most pastors throughout history do. But then the communist Soviets took over Romania. And some people caved. Some Christians decided that the best way to get along was just to to go along with the communist doctrine and uh, become basically agents of, of the communist state. But there were those like Richard Warbrand who said no. And he continued to preach the gospel. And he even tried, because he spoke, spoke fluent Russian, he tried to evangelize the, the Russian soldiers. And he had a, a meeting in his home. And eventually, of course, this was discovered, as he knew it would be. And when he was out one day, he never came back. They arrested him. And he was imprisoned for 14 years. He was regularly beaten, so much so that he could never walk normally again. He was put in solitary confinement for three years. And all they wanted from him were the names of other Christians. That's all he had to do, was name some of his other fellow Christians. And they said, at least, that they would let him free. But he wouldn't do it. And he wasn't the only one. And so he became part of a church in that prison as they put more and more Christians in that prison. And they died of beatings and they died of starvation and they died of disease and they they died of uh, tuberculosis particularly that was rampant. But they didn't deny their faith. And I watched that movie. It's about an hour long. And eventually he was ransomed. Uh, and they encouraged him to leave the country, and eventually he made it to the United States, and he's the one that founded the ministry Voice of the Martyrs to give voice to those who are buried in the bowels of, of prisons around the world. He just died, I think, in 2001. But I'm sure that he bore on his body the marks of Christ as well. Now, I don't know whether to to recommend the movie or not. I would like to. But there were times in the movie when they were portraying this persecution and this torture that I had to close my eyes and stop my ears. But I'm glad that I watched the movie, but it's left me distressed since then. And it's left me distressed because he said something that rang in my mind and has been with me since then. He said, when this took place, we discovered a new type of Christianity in Romania. And it was a type of Christianity that that thrives under persecution. And I thought, that's a type of Christianity that I've never seen. I've read about it. I've read about it in the New Testament. I've read about it in church history. But to see it portrayed graphically in a movie hit me in a new way. But I realized it wasn't really a new type of Christianity after all. It was normal Christianity. Christianity that was born with the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Christianity that grew with the death of of the apostles and the blood of the martyrs. Christianity that that has been growing throughout history through the sacrifices of many. That's normal Christianity. And if that seems like new Christianity to us, it's because we haven't experienced that. And I was troubled 
Because I asked myself, how much of that Christianity have I seen in my life? And even more important, the question for me is, how much of that Christianity have I practiced in my life? May it never be, said Paul, that I should boast, except in the cross of Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. We don't know what the future holds. We don't know if one day the church in the West will be tested, as the church has been tested and continues to be tested in Asia, in Africa, in parts of Eastern Europe, places in Latin America. We don't know what will be coming to us But we need to pray for those who are practicing genuine Christianity in the face of these kinds of persecutions. And we need to pray for ourselves that we too, we who are so comfortable, that we too would learn what it means to be fully given over to Christ, to boast in His cross alone and to live out our lives, not according to the world, but according to the new creation, created by Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our God, may it never be that we should boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to us, and we have been crucified to the world. And we pray this in His name. Amen.